welcome to the last thing I saw. This is a festival dispatch, and the festival is IDFA, the uh, International Documentary Festival. I'm going to be joined by the one and only Eric Hines. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Nick. This is Eric Hines of Museum of the Moving Image, and indeed, I'm back in New York, as are you. Uh, we had different, we had overlap, but we actually were at different ends of the festival, so I think we're probably going to be talking, telling each other about our experiences, which should be fun. So one thing I guess we'll just mention, I mean, I don't think it actually really affects, you know, anything, but uh, some of these movies we know because we were doing Q&As at the festival um, for them or, or talks with the filmmaker. Um, so I, that's, I guess there's a, a bonus there because we'll give you little tidbits of, of those Q&As, I suppose. Yes, no, tidbits are good, but I think also just, uh, again, I think there's, we, we have much to gain from have that extra context of talking to filmmakers, but we're also, uh, at least in some, fashion in the tank with the programmers who invited us <laughs> we are we are very much uh, uh <laughs> beholden to them and appreciative uh of of them wanting us to be part of their festival so you know we're we're, we're not here to with any poison pens for idfa so if you want that you should probably go elsewhere <laughs> that's right for all those idfa bashing podcasts that i know they're <laughs> such a they're such a member people want to see that festival go down <laughs> actually the opposite like that, that is the festival that, that that refuses to 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 stop i mean they, they actually had their festival in person last year even though they could not they really couldn't have visitors i think i was told they had three international guests at their festival wow. last year but they had tried really really hard to stay open for the sake of showing these films to the public and they actually did so even though they only had three international guests they did do public screenings for all their films, it was just in crazy sort of reduced capacity and not ideal circumstances. So the fact that they they proceeded again this year, even though there are significant concerns in terms of you know, rising numbers throughout Europe, in particular Amsterdam, but they I think they would wound up being a safe festival, and no one wanted them not to have you know like I just feel like everybody is rooting for IDFA. So it's 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 you're kidding yeah. about it. Do you think that IDFA is? tends to be something that people really, really root for. I think just for a lot of different reasons, but I mean, the most sort of obvious quotidian one is just that it, it's, it is the biggest documentary industry festival in Europe. So it just, is a, there's, a, there's a lot of reason for, for people needing that to go on, both for showing films and for funding films, because there's a lot of films that show up there looking to get made. Yeah, that's really important background uh, to give. I mean, this this year was a real success in terms of, a, it happening, but also like it would have been a shame if, if it had been curtailed in, in, in a significant way because, I, you know, I, I genuinely really thought it was a strong program, but they charged on ahead. And, and one of the reasons that Nick and I didn't see each other much is that they closed things down after eight o'clock. So those films proceeded after eight o'clock, the streets were pretty much empty. You couldn't go to a bar or a restaurant or any kind of party associated with the festival. So it was real limited in terms of the kind of interacting with, with people. It's true. Yeah. The, the various necessary precautions put a bit of a bedtime on things, but we all had fun playing hoops and uh, shuffleboard during the day um, <laughs> un under the cleansing glare of the sun and um, perfect outdoor safety. <laughs> Jacks, you know, kickball, that sort of thing. <laughs> But it's the variety of things is also just pretty impressive. And I, I say that mainly because I want to find a way into the, the top prize winner, um, which, you know, I, I don't think anyone who listens to the podcast thinks that we talk about the prize winners per, per se just because of that. But in this case, I just found it really special because uh, it was a uh, well, actually, Eric, do you want to describe what uh, was given the top award? Yeah. So the top award was given to uh, a filmmaker who is the first time in competition at IDFA, which is pretty remarkable considering who he is. And that's Sergei Loznitsa for Mr. Landsbergis. And that is a four hour documentary film, which is not your common international competition entry, nor your common winner of that competition. But I think it does, having seen the film, I would say it just goes to show exactly how strong of a film it is. You know, uh, there's, there's reasons to not give it to a, such a venerable master like Lusnitsa if, if you don't have to, but I think the film is that strong that it is the choice, you know, um, yeah. it is, it is the latest in, you know, I think several decade long project that he has among other projects. Like Sergei Lusnitsa is doing a lot of things at once and um, has been working at a pretty feverish pace for a while. Um, and, you know, this year alone, he's got two films 
counting six hours total between them, you know, which was Baba Yar context, which was at Cannes and won a special mention uh, for, for the documentary competition there. And then won a special mention again at IDFA because it was also at IDFA. But anyway, this is the, the most recent and I haven't had a chance to talk to him in too much detail about it. So there's a lot I still want to know about the making of it. But I would say that I'm grateful for his project in general, because I think these films have been extremely strong and illuminating films like The Trial, The Event, State Funeral, and these kind of archival deep dives or unearthing of little pockets of the archive that was just totally revelatory what, what these films have, have, have done. But I, I think that if he hadn't done that work for all this time, he couldn't have made this film as quickly or as effectively as he did, because what it winds up being is it winds up being kind of a, a focused look at, you know, this last several years of, of Lithuania under the aegis of the Soviet Union and then the sort of early days as an independent state. Um, and it's all through, or, or I would say in, through the perspective of its first president, Landsbergis, um, who was an academic and sort of rose up uh, as a significant voice during those last days and then wound up being the president. And what the film does is to go in a sort of minute way. Like, it's not summarial really even though of course even at four hours it's it's still obviously summarial but it allows him to go kind of significant moment by significant moment and give that moment 15 20 minutes whatever it takes to kind of show properly and those moments are all riveting and extraordinary and truly worth the time and you realize after four hours how you could do that with so many significant times in history like that if you had the material you could show how things actually unfolded and you don't have to cut corners you don't have to summarize to the point where you give short shrift to one aspect or another so you know like if you've seen his the event the film about sort of the, the last days of Soviet Union from the perspective of a protest uh, in St. Petersburg, you kind of take that and you do that like 10 times over, which is sort of what Mr. Landsbergis is. It's, it's staggering. And, and another thing is it's, it's an evolution of his style too, because unlike these other films, this has an interview. So the still living Landsbergis is actually sitting for several extended interviews with Luznitsa and his voice comes into it. And so I would say all told he's on screen for less than a half an hour. But that's a significant amount of time and allows that to sit there and to not really, again, lose too much of the archive. And as far as archives concerned, again, like something like the event, uh, what he's able to do by sort of sourcing so many, taking on so many, so many different sources, as you get these kind of like cubistic or three-dimensional views of these scenes, you get cross cuts from one side of the street to another. It's incredible. And so that in all this different media that he's not necessarily, you know, he's not transferring necessarily. So like you can tell the difference between film and video or black and white and color, but by allowing all these different formats to be in there, he can actually give you a full sense of what's actually happening in those rooms and spaces. Um, it is an incredible incredible work wow. um and i think what it adds up to is by being so specific and not again not being too summarial about things it winds up being i think actually very transferable in terms of a model of what, how these things could go and 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 how things things shouldn't happen what in terms of forming of a state and and like it, it actually is something to look at and and be able to learn from or to be able to sort of think about in terms of applying it to other situations because it's so detailed mm. so and i don't think it's a, a hard sit either you know i think that's the thing you expect to say and like we probably talk about this with wiseman sometimes and i actually mm. don't think you can necessarily say that with wiseman too much because he's not really there it's not really constructed so that you have a fast experience and i would say that's not necessarily the case here either but i do think because it goes from event to event and there's such significant things happening in front of you that it is pretty riveting yeah well i'm, I'm very curious what are a couple of events or what that occur i mean i assume some of it has to do with the kind of birth throes when it's like not even clear do we have the authority to be independent or that sort of moment or something like that yeah well i mean i mean there's a lot going on with gorbachev there which it was a perspective that i did not have before you know like it's mm -hmm. a really dark chapter for the gorbachev story um, oh. and, oh. you know, like he comes and visits, you know, when there is kind of significant agitation and there's a rise of a party and he comes to kind of just meet the people and talk to them, give them a chance to speak their mind. And he's going to give them a chance to hear his perspective. And he's walking through the streets and he's like profoundly condescending, you know, hmm. he's just profoundly condescending. Like I'm, I'm father Soviet union and, and, you know, you're sort of my child who's acting up. Wow. And he clearly doesn't take it seriously. And, you know, and so there's that. And then there's 
the election of Landsbergis, which was kind of like a significant moment to basically say, no, 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 we're a, we're a country, we're doing this. And, mm-hmm. and you've got uh, him up against, you know, the, the kind of like their leader from as a Soviet territory. And that vote, that's allowed to sort of sit there. That's allowed to be a whole time where you sort of get the, for, get an understanding of what's at stake and where these two people are coming from. Mm. And then, and then you've got months after that, when they're declaring themselves a nation and the Soviet Union is clamping down. And so there's people die. It's basically Budapest in the sixties for, for, for a little bit of time there, you know? Wow. And because things change so quickly afterwards, we don't think about it. We don't know, you know, we don't really right. talk about it. So like the ugliness that went down towards the end, that history kind of then quickly sped past this film, you know, it brings back to life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that it's really true because it, so many republics getting their independence, but it was all treated, you know, in my limited recollection as kind of monolithically. And even, even since then, it's, yeah, you kind of yeah. speed past the individual experiences of these countries. Um, it kind of makes me wonder if Lesnitz is going to kind of do, you know, more countries in a way and kind of... It makes me wonder that too, because this does not spend any time on the other countries. You know, like mm-hmm. the whole time I'm thinking... I'm curious about what was happening at the exact same moment with some of these other countries. You know, every once in a while it mm-hmm. comes up where like at the UN, like several of the countries are mentioned as being recognized. And I'm like, oh, right. Those other countries are doing this too, but we're just, he's not focusing on them. So yeah, it makes me wonder if he's going to do it. Yeah. That really drives home. You, you were saying that this is one of his projects. And of course, yeah, I guess some of the stories could get pretty wild with uh, some of the other former republics. I can't believe that he's still alive also. I guess he must be. And, and it sounds like he's sort of in the mold of like a Vaclav Havel or something. Yes, he is definitely in the mold of Vaclav Havel. Yeah, that's, that's accurate. Um, oh, I think less of an artist, you know, but, um, yeah. but a literary man, a uh, man of letters. Yeah. He was there. I have to say that the film started at 7 p.m. And so after he said a few words and Sergei said a few words and the film ended, I did not have stamina to watch the Q&A, but I'm sure that was a huge mistake because he was up there talking for a while, apparently, which would have been interesting. <laughs> oh. So that was, yeah, that was the winner of the international competition. My wheels are turning a little bit because I'm realizing that one of the movies that I saw and, and did a Q&A for connects to this, one from the late 90s, so almost perhaps contemporary with some of the events. It's a State of Dogs, which I'll just mention because it's about another post-Soviet breakup experience in Mongolia, which you know wasn't part of Soviet Union, but I, I think had Soviet soldiers there. Yeah, I just wanted to mention it because it's 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 a film that was originally inspired by uh, the efforts of a Mongolian TV producer who wanted to chronicle the first election there, the first independent elections there. What happened is he teamed up with another filmmaker who is from Belgium, and uh, together they ended up making this kind of semi-documentary, semi-kind of, you know, mythical or mythical telling about a dog's soul. And so it's it's this kind of interesting lunar-like landscape where obviously there wasn't a lot of development, I guess, under the Soviet Union there. Um, and then they were just trying to find their way. And But it's told through the lens of this dog's kind of memories of living with a shepherding family. And then the family sells its herd and they go to the city. So there's a whole urbanization idea there. How, how does it handle the, the, the dog's memories? <laughs> well, it's done. It's not done like in a literal like flashback kind of way. It's, it's done in a, in a loose floating way. And that is kind of intertwined with the narration provided by a poet who kind of sings these songs or, or, or rather delivers, <laughs> it's almost like poetry slam a little bit, these really great lyrical lines and the kind of punctuates the movie. But you kind of figure it's more, I think it's more that you kind of realize what's happening and then they come back to it more. In that sense, like it's really good visual storytelling. because It's not like kind of slavishly stuck on that conceit. Right, right. The, the landscapes are in pretty uh, incredible. These strange relics, you know, sometimes you'll have some strange Soviet monument in the background, you know, these kind of like, but then obviously also just lifestyles and farming that has happened for centuries before that. So there's a sense of something, you know, more lasting underneath it all, but also a precariousness because, you know, as, as I'm sure kind of crops up in Mr. Lansbury's when you have this kind of power vacuum, what'll happen next? Although, I mean, on this, it's it's really told more on the ground level. But I, I just wanted to mention, because it is it is really amazing to think on so many fronts, you know, at the end of, of the Soviet Union, that you had this scenario unfolding. 
and both of the filmmakers are there. And are they still working? Are they still making films? Peter Brosens is one. He continued to make movies. Um, I think he's been making fiction movies more recently. One of them was a comedy about the King of the Belgians. And the um, Mongolian TV producer, Tormund Dorkman, he, as far as I know, has continued producing and also writing. He had a book that he wrote, a biography of the Mongolian president. Mm. What I liked about talking about it was that it did emerge that it was really a fax that he had sent, I guess, to some European TV station hmm. to initiate this project. And then it kind of evolved in, into this. But, you know, that kind of just just to kind of counter any story or narrative that it's we're going to come to Mongolia and see how they're doing it. Though it was a Mongolian TV producer who wanted to chronicle it. So I kind of like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, that yeah, that's State of Talks. Well, that, that makes me think of, you know, not to stick, stick entirely to Russia or post-Soviet territory, but, but it makes <laughs> me think of another competition film, Where Are We Headed, which oh, yeah. won the Cinematography Prize, then also was the top winner for the Best First Feature, Best First Film Award um, by this uh, young filmmaker, Ruslan Fedotov. And I think we've both seen this, so maybe yes. I don't know what you think of it, but I'll, uh, but I'll, I'll start just because uh, it's my turn. Um, but yes, please. <laughs> there are turns that we've after you wear. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this is a film that I actually saw a couple times because I did a talk with it uh, with, with with Ruslan, uh, and and I would say that um, I think it's a it, there there's there's a significant filmmaking here, and I, and and I think that the second time through for me um, added layers uh, to the first. It's definitely a, a a genre of film that I respond to, so I I already did respond to it. Um, it is a it is a it's a, it's a quick film. It's a little over an hour, and it is pretty strictly, you know, observations from inside the Moscow subway system and kind of man on the street approach to that. And and somebody who has lived there and who knows those spaces pretty well and has not for about fifteen years. I, I thought about this because you're talking about the late '90s, and I'm, and in some ways, I think that this portrait wouldn't be that different from the late '90s to 2005 when I was there till now because there's just something about that space um, and that city um, that. That, that that kind of like lends itself to to what you see in the film, which is, you know, it's an incredibly eclectic view of behavior. You've got, you know, vendors trying, you know, to sell and being intercepted by Milizia. You've got a lot of drunks. You've got young people kind of out on a date. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, you've got some older folk here and there. You've got a lot of just kind of odd, you know, a behavior kind of passing in front of the camera. Um, there's not a whole lot of kind of looping back to anyone. Nobody really becomes a character. Um, so it's very much just kind of like a, stri- I would say strict, but, but predominantly just observational about exactly who you might encounter in the space. In a sense, kind of takes the point of view of, of, of you know, you're, you're basically, you are there. You're somebody who's sort of taking a ride in the subway and, and, and seeing what transpires. So like in, in that respect, it's not particularly complicated, but I do think, I, I did appreciate even more the second time around some of, some of what the structure was and and sort of like kind of what was sort of being raised somewhat subtly um thematically but i mean obviously the 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 two juries responded strongly to it yeah well i I imagine you might have yeah you must have had a really good perspective on it having having trod those marble subway halls um in the past i for me you know it was just i liked the sense that you could follow this filmmaker following uh his interests in a way i i think there's there's a way where he kind of includes that that sense of, of the trail that he picks up in each case. It's where he you get a, he gets a glimpse of something. He's like, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with this for a while. And right. I, sometimes that can be like a, a cutesy thing, but here I just I thought it was done um, nicely. And then sometimes not at all. But you know, it's like, oh, what's what's happening with this guy who's trying to sell a balloon and seems to be just talking about yeah. selling balloons, but is not really selling any balloons. <laughs> Um, and then it's sort of like a filmmaker's film in that way, right? Like you're kind of playing filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that's true. It's like, and then part of it, I guess, is that, you know, it's not, always, the, the payoff is not always going to be like making it clear. Uh, so sometimes you, you learn a little, sometimes it's still a mystery. What's, what's, what's going to happen after that. Yeah. I mean, I think like the closest it comes to a repeating character, I mean, only because I think maybe they return to it once or twice uh, is this dialogue, this kind of, cosmological dialogue going on between one of one of several people in the movie actually who has a santa beard on who is talking with a woman who i took to be somewhat intoxicated but in a kind of you know 
friendly, like, you know, <laughs> shoot the shit kind of way yeah. uh, where they're, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to kind of work out some big problems <laughs> uh, and have like a heart to heart talk about, you know, uh, the orbit of the earth around the moon, around the sun <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and like the nature of the Russian soul. And, you know, he's quoting Dostoevsky, but not the quote, you know, this other quote that he thinks is more important. It's one of those things where, I mean, I don't know, I had a, uh, a friend of mine who I guess was, you know, always, always a great writer. And I always thought, oh, she tells the greatest stories, the craziest things happened to her. And then I was like, no, it's that she's really good at noticing and observing. And, you know, so um, yeah. it's, yeah. it's kind of what you do with it. So that, that's, that's all by way of saying that, like, yeah, it's not just he happens to be in the right places. He's also like, you know, selecting and framing it certain ways. And, and, and you and you talked about how like you don't necessarily know what becomes of it. I think that's also an interesting choice that he winds up making in terms of when you come in and mm. when you go out of a shot, you know, that, that he kind of like yeah. either either stops filming or decides to cut before it might become clear what, what you're looking at. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I just want to mention one other thing. I mean, I, I could reel off vignettes from this all, 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 all day long. <laughs> But there's another one, which is a woman who I guess also is drunk, um, middle-aged, and she just stands next to a statue okay. and just is communing with it. And I guess there's a significance to the statue because tourists are coming over and taking photos of it. Do you know what that what the deal is with that? It, it, I remember I remember that statue. I mean, it, you know, like there is. I mean, one thing he does not do is he does not kind of fawn over the gorgeous subway architecture. <laughs> you know, True. like which is what people do. People write entire books and they go from station to station because it is extraordinary how, how much sort of like money Stalin put into these spaces. Um, uh, like it's they're just subway. I like think we look at New York versus Moscow and it's appalling, but, but he's not falling <laughs> over that. He's looking at the people, you know, but one of these spaces, yeah. I forget which one it is. It's quite central has like kind of elaborate sculptures among them, you know, uh, animals, you know, kind of like military animals uh, or sort of, right. you know, symbolic Russian animals that are kind of like uh, accompanying these soldiers. And, and they're very much at eye level and people like to pet the animals. <laughs> Quite frankly, people <laughs> like to pet the animals. And you can tell that because it's been rubbed, rubbed you know, bronzed, you know, whatever. It goes from sort right. of dark to light. Um, and, and this woman's uh, staring and fondling uh, this, uh, this rooster in particular. <laughs> Yeah, with just the most serious, you know, anyway, she could be at like a funeral. It was incredible. Uh, the filmmaker did talk about that when asked, and he said that he usually did not talk to people. He wanted to stay, actually, and, and a lot of these shots are kind of with a lens that sort of allows him to be a little bit further away, but sometimes, mm. very rarely, he then followed up with a conversation, and he did try to speak to her, and she just kind of looked at him blankly and walked away. <laughs> so he never found out at all what her deal was. <laughs> Well, she's just like, well, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> I don't want. I, I know we have a couple other films we want to talk about, but do you? I wonder if you wanted to say anything about where the film goes. The kind of very particular crowd scenes that it ends up getting oh, into yeah. in the last part. Yeah, I mean, it winds up spending some time on Victory Day, you know, which is the sort of celebration of. Uh, end of the Great War, um, and so there are some, you know, whatever dense with people bits, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, and then that is a, that is not a great day to go out and carouse. You know, it winds up being pretty drunk, <laughs> winds up being pretty masculine right. aggression heavy, and and you see a bit of that. You know, you see a bit of kind of contention um, that doesn't really necessarily like reveal itself as far as it could, but you definitely get that sense of. You know, there yeah, there are there are bits where you're kind of alone and, and and with solitary figures, and then there's then there's this, and I think that there's 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 both New Year's Eve and Victory Day. I think of the big events that he winds up shooting on, where you see probably you see you see the most kind of wayward behavior, um, and yeah. the, and those the, the the sequence in particular on Victory Day are tough. Like as soon as like you you realize he's filming on that day, it, it's a pretty tense experience. Yeah, you know, you don't know. I mean, that, that's where I guess the title comes a little bit in play, into play. You don't know either on like the interpersonal level how it's going to play out right in the moment because there are scenes of, you know, people just trying to claim space and almost start something. And also just on obviously at yeah, a larger level, where where does that where does that go? Um, yeah. Uh, continue to go. Um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. That's, and I have to think that the director you know, he does signal where, because if it's a movie that shows a lot of like person to person connection and communion versus, you know, the 
not to overuse the word monolithic, but yeah, this kind of nationalist, you know, the person disappearing in the larger body ethos um, yeah. versus like individuals connecting. He, I think he does come down to one side, uh, right. fortunately, um, in, in, a, in, a, in a very nice and kind of mischievous way. Also, just I want to give a shout out to the lovely, sh- I don't know, second or third shot of people going down an escalator, which is, would seem to be the most hackneyed of shots. But I think he did something really great with it. I agreed. I agree. Yeah, it's early enough that it could tip you one way or the other if you're familiar with that kind of shot. You know. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now you, you, when we were talking before, you uh, were observing that where are we headed could join on a thread with uh, one or two other movies that were shown at the Sears edition. Yeah, there's there's there's, there's two other films that I think that are kind of non-narrative, uh, formal approaches that are also not formalist. You know, um, they're, they're, they're kind of these films where you have multiple characters or sort of multiple people passing in front of the, the camera that we meet for, for short periods of time. You know, non, non-character driven, fragmented films uh, in, in kind of delineated spaces or, you know, with, with mm. but, but I guess my point is none, none of those three are, I would categorize as being particularly avant-garde or experimental either. Like if there's a sort of a space that they occupied that, which I find really interesting. And so the other two would be um, day after dot, dot, dot. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that is a film by filmmaker uh, Kamar Ahmad Simon. Uh, and that's about an old rickety steamer that basically departs from Dhaka in Bangladesh and goes south towards the ocean. Um, and it is, yeah, it's a hundred year old colonialist vessel um, that is still running, that gets used uh, all the time still um, to, to transport folks from town to town. And I think it's a three day, three or four day journey or three night, four day journey. And uh, it's kind of like a confidence man or upstairs, downstairs type mm-hmm. thing where you're basically encountering folks from each class of, of the ship. Um, the folks who are kind of sitting and sleeping on the floor uh, of the of the first level, the second level where there's some accommodations, the third level where it's mostly foreigners in their own rooms, and it's a I, I, I think kind of like a totally enrapturing experience where it's pretty obvious to me that there's a that there's a conceit here and that there's um, a plan as well. You know, it's it's beautifully put together, it's beautifully shot. Filmmaker shoots himself, but it's a unlikely that it was shot over one journey let's put it that way <laughs> um mm-hmm. but he constructs it such that yeah you get to encounter a wide variety of, of, of people um and it winds up being a real all ages multi-generational multi-class portrait um and i think winds up being something of a of a statement you know exactly and then instead of like where are we headed but where are we you know mm-hmm. um, but i think very similar in terms of like day after dot 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 there's a bit of a kind of like in progress a little bit of sort of like it's pending still where you know where 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 this is actually going to land up end up docking, and it, um and and where it actually ends as a as a as a narrative I I will not reveal um but I think speaks to this too, um mm. and then the other one was the balcony movie by Paweł Lozinski, the latest film by Paweł Lozinski, um who uh, is Polish and and that film is shot entirely from his own balcony in Warsaw. And I think it's like winds up being a year or two years of, of just kind of training his camera out the window um, and, uh, or say not out the window, but on the balcony uh, through the window, um, pretty much almost d- directly down uh, at the sidewalk. Um, and really whoever comes by that he can get their attention. He then asks them about life. He asks them about them, about where, you know, wh- wh- what they're up to with their thoughts on things to try to get them to sort of engage in more serious issues and, and that is probably the most formalist of these because it starts with this conceit of just being, here's a, here's one or two questions I'm going to ask, and here's the one frame that I'm going to have uh, on the sidewalk. And you can see him start the film kind of just kind of arranging what that shot's going to be. But over time, the questions change, the degree to which he's in the film, or at least sort of his voice is in the film changes, and then the angle changes a bit too. Um, it kind of just grows mm. a bit. Um, and it, though it was made shot before the pandemic, it winds up being very pandemic familiar um, in terms of kind of being where our perspective is locked in inside and we're kind of where we're looking outwards to try to sort of interact with other people. And even shots in this film remind me of seeing, you know, friends, you know, Instagram uh, photographs of like, Oh, my friends came to visit me and we had lunch and they were like, 
like talking to me through the balcony. We were handing down liquor, you know, um, something about that that feels redolent for this film. But then it also doesn't, it's not fraught with being a pandemic movie. You know, it just feels mm-hmm. familiar and I have a warmth toward it because I can identify with it without it being, you know, just kind of weighed down by by, by discussion around the, the pandemic. Yeah. But yet but you wind up encountering odd characters like you do for Where We Headed, like you do for, for Day Out. Yeah. I'm just thinking of like the spectrum of, you know, like window movies. <laughs> and so like, I guess this is maybe uh, on, on one, one part and then somewhere on this, you know, I guess is uh, Victor Kosakowski's Tisha. Oh yeah. Um, that's, that's the most, yeah. To me, I thought about that the most readily. Yeah. Yeah. Also just comes to mind because I think the place where I first saw Tisha was at, as if at it actually. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that one's, he doesn't interact with the people who are going by his window. Right. And, and, right. and then, and then even further along that line, I get, we could add, um, Laba, the Chantal Ackerman, where she just is indoors. So. <laughs> totally. Totally. And when I also think of, uh, the, the, I remember reading Vin Vendors uh, memoir years ago, and he talks oh, wow. about falling in love with cinema because he first got a camera. And the first thing he did was pointed outside and just filmed. Oh, cool. You know, <laughs> And that kind of instinct for him was sort of just like the beginning of cinema, as far as he's concerned. You just want to watch people, you know? Yeah, that's great. Um, the world outside your window. So, it, wait, it's just called um, The Balcony Movie? Yeah. Yep. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, ba- The Balcony Movie. And I think, I don't really have a segue for this, but um, <laughs> I guess... I guess another, I guess along the lines of another, you know, movie that got an award at, at, at the festival. And this film, the film you're about to say got too, I believe. Yes. Um, although I'm not sure I can identify which ones. Uh, Children of the Mist. Yeah. It got best director for the director, Ziem Hale, who is a, a very young director. I believe it's her first feature and it's a really remarkably uh, accomplished movie that is about a about her friend you know it's all shot in this hilly farming community in vietnam they're Hmong, and so they apparently in this community still have a, a tradition of wife kidnapping right which is you know sort of inconveniently clashing with you know her friend's desire just to kind of hang out with guys with boys because it starts you know, I think she's 13 or 14. There are kind of two phases to this. Most of the movie is when she's maybe 13 or 14 and what happens when she goes to town one time and hangs out and and it becomes a whole incredible drama or melodrama really just about what happens when, when that occurs and the kind of negotiation between the family and uh, her friend's relationship with her mother, uh, the filmmaker's relationship with her friend, because she also, you know, talks and gets involved and is also involved just in the sense of like chronicling the different phases of, of, of this. Um, you know, at one point, there's a question of whether they will drink the breakup wine in order to like unravel things. If, if you would want to unravel a, you know, engagement you have to have breakup wine. So that's an interesting uh, phase in the film. The camera work is, I have to say, pretty incredible because it's she does beautiful landscape photography. You know, it's in the title, the, the mists coming up over the hills and just these things that, you know, other films would kill to have as, as establishing shots. And also these, not fly on the wall because she's right in the thick of catching people talking and being a part of the situation as well. And so I, I was really impressed on a, a number of levels and, and mm. had the privilege to, to do a Q&A with her. Uh, very curious to see what she does next. Uh, you know, obviously, I guess it's one of those films where it's a bit, you know, you, I'm sure you could make hay about her involvement in it and what that means. But I think in this case, it's actually part of the emotional terrain of the movie, her own investment in it and yeah. what she fears for, hopes for with her friend. And I was, yeah, I really, really admired Children of the Mist. Also, you know, pretty unpredictable uh, film, <laughs> I would say. Okay. <laughs> sort of seeing uh, that film, seeing her take the prize and see how young she is in person and to hear you talk about it, um, it just sort of makes me realize how sometimes the this, you know, we're talking about how people pull for IDFA and, and wouldn't wish ill on, on its existence. It, it's interesting to think about how a film like this by such a young filmmaker kind of wouldn't exist without a festival. Mm. Like, I think both the, the IDFA 
forum and hot docs forum i think this film was really well received and received help at various points along the way in these kind of you know these fundraising attempts at these festivals and i think to sort of see a film like this then world premiere at this place and have be so well received there's there's something there's something about that circuit that i'm sure a lot of people not everybody has great experiences on that but to sort of see something kind of work out for the best is is, is nice yeah, and, and also that it, it's a movie that really preserves this kind of mystery and unpredictable aspect to it. And as kind of polished as it basically is, it, it doesn't feel like packaged or, or as if the, the individuality of the filmmaker has been kind of streamlined for our consumption either. Right, which can happen, which certainly can happen in, in these circuits. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's Children of the Mist. There are definitely one or two other films that I know that you've seen that I haven't. I was curious to hear about. There's one about uh, an oologist. <laughs> yes, uh, O Collecting Eggs Despite the Times. And it is by the Dutch filmmaker Pim Zwier, who I had not heard of before. I actually think this is the first time in IDFA. I could be wrong, but I believe that's the case. Um, and he makes films uniquely. Uh, he... Uh, he tells these sort of smaller historical uh, tales uh, that wind up being excuses for deep archival dives that, uh, you know, wind up, you know, sort of speaking to much larger things while being very, very tightly focused in in an archival uh, historical sense. Um, So, uh, but this film is about the ornithologist from Germany, Max Schoenwetter, who was an obsessive egg collector a profession or a hobby that doesn't, I think, I believe is illegal now, um, but was not, of course, in the 19th, into the 20th century, because everything was collectible, I guess. Um, And it is conveyed uh, entirely through uh, letters from Schoenwetter to others, from others to Schoenwetter, and I believe also spills a little bit beyond just that uh, things associated entirely with him. There's There's a wealth of archive that's being used and also we have access to the art, the archive itself of the eggs, which, uh, which exists in a in kind of a particular sort of science archive in Germany. Um, and so we get to, um, and one of the things he does, there's a, there's these layers of, of what, of what actually is featured in the film. Um, and visually you get, you get a, an archive, which winds up kind of speaking to, but also complementing or even kind of being contrapuntal to what's being talked about. Um, in the audio and basically you've, you've got kind of historical like what's actually happening in these places during this time which of course is you know extends from the early century through the 1950s and so you get the war obviously and so you get mm. a lot of what's happening in the moment when these letters are being written and as people are obsessing over eggs and it's actually happening during sieges it's happening during the rise of the holocaust you know like it's remarkable what's actually outside the door but what remains inside the door in the letters winds up being very much focused on the eggs but you also get archive of you know science archive you get kind of i, I kind of can't believe like he, like he finds ways of and he finds historically uh, accurate film of just people interacting with birds <laughs> or with eggs at that yeah. time you know that he's matching this up um and it's very satisfying to see that but my long way around is he also then filming the eggs and kind of and classifying them for us. So as they're being discussed, we then we have this lovingly photographed shot of this egg, often with Sean Vetter or somebody else's handwriting on the egg, identifying what it is. So we're kind of like acting as oologists at the same time as we're uh, film viewers. Um, so it's a very, very unique uh, viewing experience, that's for sure. <laughs> That's such a, it's such a fascinating film to hear about, you know, in, in the context of a couple of other historical films we've been talking about. Just, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, putting, putting the camera in a very different place in, in, the, in the kind of fabric of history to get a different angle. And you also have, and there are reenactments, and the reenactments are almost entirely people writing letters, you know, hands writing letters or hands fondling eggs. <laughs> That's really what you're doing. You're not, we're not getting faces. We're not getting other things. It's very much you know, focused on that. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm, I, yeah, that's definitely high on my list to, to catch up on. <laughs> you know um, what, you, you know, I feel like if you're hearing this, you're, you're, you're it's, and, and you respond to this, you know, that's whatever, like, uh, it's going to be self-selective. Who's going to see this. <laughs> that's, that's right. Whereas other people are like, okay, all right, good. So, <laughs>
And I'm like, let me see those eggs. Um, <laughs> They're pretty eggs, very pretty eggs. And you get a sense of a, exactly the myriad ways you could identify who the egg yeah. belongs to. Yeah, but it's also, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll use this as, as a pivot just because there is there is a, a found footage aspect and archival footage aspect. I do have one more movie just to mention uh, that is entirely archival film footage and archival photos. I did a, a filmmaker talk with uh, Portuguese filmmaker Susana de Souza Diaz, who is engaged in a project about the Portuguese dictatorship. So she's made a number of movies, not you know exclusively, but she's made a number of movies about uh, a dictatorship that I guess doesn't really get a lot of screen time in, in terms of movies or documentaries. Um, so she's sort of rectified that. And it's a, this 48-year period when Salazar was dictator and opposition, any resistance, people were tortured. And But Journey to the Sun, her latest, is from a kind of reverse shot uh, in, in a way, uh, because it's about Austrian children who, at the close of World War II, were shipped off to Portugal for safekeeping, um, which might sound strange after, you know, just saying that Portugal was under dictatorship then. But the thing is, it was a dictatorship, uh, but, you know, not everyone suffers in a dictatorship, uh, especially if, you know, you're comfortable bourgeois or upper upper class family so right. a lot of these children were kind of placed in in you know well-off homes and it was a completely disoriented experience of abandonment but for many of them it was materially better than being in like rubble uh, or in extreme poverty in their hometown although of course they also show in this movie you know the poverty that existed in portugal uh, if you weren't among favored classes so it's all accomplished through this really moving mixture of photos and voiceover from the surviving children who, of course, at this point aren't 80s or 70s, um, but they are all still, you know, scarred by, by, this ex- by the bizarreness and in some cases the kind of trauma of this experience. Uh, so it's, it has that intimacy that I think sometimes almost naturally comes with a movie that's really based on stills and a voiceover where, especially the way it's mic'd. So, but you feel like you're peering at these photos with the person kind of at your, at your side as you're trying to gather what they went through. Right. Uh, so right. it's, it's, it's just, you know, uh, in a way maybe like a good bookend with the Mr. Landsbergers because just this slice of, history that for one reason or another hasn't been foregrounded i mean this particularly because it's 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 a sort of a i mean i guess stories have been told about uh, other refugees or or exiles and people fleeing in world war ii and you know there definitely was an echo for me of you know jewish children who were murdered um were were sent and and murdered um which i I did ask her a, a little bit about so because it's this sort of unavoidable parallel where yeah, the, I mean, in a sense, these children were saved, but uh, obviously others others were not. Um, right. But right. yeah, it's just a very fraught, um, fraught terrain and an interesting look in it and through it that gives a newer perspective on this life under Portugal, where outwardly, I suppose it was stable in some way because it was a 48-year reign and for some classes it was okay, but there were also others where... You know, it was basically some extension of like feudalism. It's a filmmaker, and I, I don't know her work. In yeah, I, I, it's. I think her last film was in the Berlin Film Festival. It was called Fordlandia Malaise, and it was about. I mean, her movies seem to be a. Uh, you know, another running theme is just colonialism and the colonialist project, uh, and that is about an American colonial project, which is Henry Ford's building this kind of plantation in South America, a company town uh, in, I think it was Brazil, um, as part of his, you know, kind of manufacturing chain. She, yeah, she has a couple other movies uh, along these lines. There's one called 48, named after 48 years of dictatorship. Um, and then there's, I think her first where she started was called Still Life, uh, which is, actually has a couple of photos or snippets that I think were I believe also crop up in uh, Raul Peck's uh, Exterminate All the Brutes, if I'm not mistaken, but maybe I am. But yeah, any, any anything else you want to uh, mention or highlight? No, I was just gonna. I was gonna. I was gonna. I was recognizing as I was listening to this and as we're talking how 
I'm kind of full, mm. I feel, of good film. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm introduced to a lot of different work in the last yeah. bit of time, and I'm grateful for that. It's nice to be able to talk about it. It's, it's a, it, yeah. These are significant films. Um, so and, and, and films that, I mean, I suspect, you know, more than a couple will be seeing pop up at uh, other festivals. <laughs> Down the line. You'd hope, you'd hope, you hope, I hope people are seeing, I hope, I hope the folks who might make those calls are out yeah. there seeing films yeah. like this too. Like I, yeah, I, I, I hope people are paying attention because yeah, they deserve it. And then I just want to make one last mention uh, of a archival selection, if that's the right word, um, because I thought it was pretty cool. And they did something similar last year. They found a Ziga Vertov film that I mean, mm-hmm. I guess according to the research, had not been screened uh, in a hundred years, or publicly yeah. screened, or something like this, uh, and that's history of the Civil War. Um, but I think you actually saw that with with the whole with the works, right? The orchestra. I did. I saw it with the uh, live score. Yeah. So after Revolution was the the one that they world premiered or premiered for the first time in a hundred years in twenty nineteen, and then and then they unearthed this one, and there was this one archivist whose name I absolutely should drop, who basically did the work for, on behalf of both of these, which is not just discovering a film, but re- right. basically reconstructing it, because there's not a, a print that survived of these films. So, But there were kind of shot lists, and he was able to find the footage to reconstruct these films. And and the, the, the reason why they, why this one in particular is was, was deconstructed in the first place was it's a little bit disputed, but I, I think it's because it was not uncommon at the time for filmmakers to reuse their own footage, you know, to sort of make a film for a purpose, show it, and then kind of take it and then source, use that as a source for the, for the next thing. And I think Vertov did that with a lot of this footage. I think Three Songs for Lenin was the next thing he did and was kind of the first film that people know about. And I think that some of this footage does appear there. So he just kind of did a deep dive to find out all these, put all these elements together to put the film out there and and i would say that having seen the film i'm a little skeptical of exactly i'm I'm a little skeptical about whether or not there's any kind of nefarious reasons for this not being shown again um because it seems pretty functional you know it's like Mm. incredible footage of marches and some battles and uh some leaders generals that kind of thing but it's it's very much kind of a roll call type film more than it is Mm -hmm. uh any kind of narrative you know at all so and and after revolution had elements of that too, where it was, you know, we're we're making a record and this is the record, uh, uh, and this is our version of the record, I should say. So really grateful for it. Glad I watched it, and I, and I think it should be shown again. Hopefully, it will be shown again. But, but yeah, there's there. This is not necessarily right. a hidden masterpiece, right? <laughs> Put it that way. Which it doesn't have to be. It's incredibly valuable and important, but it is not that. Right. Right. I, I looked up the film historian uh, Nikolai Izvolov. Right, Nikolai. Yes. I mean, yeah. There, it's it's one of those movies where part of it is just the novelty of having any sort of like moving image correlative to what you read about in these you know events that are are more or less just like etched in marble, um, you know, surrounding the revolution. Totally. It's, you know, or or also any idea. I guess we're back again to the Lesnitsa movie in a way any idea of like an event that happens in a year and then there's like a, there's like a period to it. Um, cause you know, I, cause what I saw of, of history of the civil war is that it kind of begins with the, the, the continuing kind of like partisan fighting <laughs> and, and ex- detonation of munitions exactly. depots and anarchists. And I, you know, obviously I don't know the history well enough to say what, how accurate and what propagandistic uses are being put forth here, but uh, it's still, <laughs> it's still kind of fascinating. It puts you in mind of, of, of silent film I watched over the movie of GW Pabst. Also the setting was like, you know, the kind of post-revolution, like whatever the opposite of melting pot is, a powder keg of just anarchists at large and roaming around. So I, for some reason, immediately, even a film like this, that's very much just a, um, as you said, kind of like a, a document list in a way, uh, still has has elements of uh, intrigue in, 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 a, in a way too. To your, to your point, I think it actually is a really, really interesting mm-hmm. kind of bracket for the Lesnitsa because there is an element of this particular time is not what is best remembered. You know, like it's kind of the, the messy factionalization and, and actually consolidation of territory too that was happening during that time and what's recounted in this film. And so I think that if, if one were to show this film again, 
really kind of giving the proper context of exactly what was happening during that time could make for really mm. a, a fascinating viewing. Whereas a Phil Russell viewing is a little bit tougher, right? you know, because it's a little bit more of the, the lost Vertov presentation rather than, oh, let's actually like use this as a text to kind of understand this particular moment in, 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 in Soviet history. Right. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've served a, a heaping plate of uh, this year's IDFA. Uh, I'll take responsibility <laughs> for, for any anything we, we, we left out. That's entirely my fault. And obviously, we you know, we both talked with many more filmmakers so well yeah, we'll just have to talk again at some point yeah but yeah i guess that brings us to the close of the 2021 idfa thank you eric as always for being uh, my co-pilot on the steamer down the river <laughs> thank you nick <laughs> happy to be your co-pilot and uh yeah i'm i think implied with the last things we saw were yes exactly <laughs> just connect the dots <laughs> thank you all for listening thanks You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>